Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Uh, Welcome once again to our third Sunday in our construction zone. And uh, thank you for your patience. I got good news. We've got, we had great progress. No, we don't have a... uh, Uh, structural engineers report giving us the green light but we have them here that's better than most of Tucson like that's a better time frame that's more momentum than uh, we could sometimes expect and uh, you saw progress on the road sign this week several things going on but lo and behold we still have our big curtain and uh, we get to look 180 degrees to address one another and say hi so um, welcome our church under construction. Listen, we are in the midst of a 16-week sermon series on the New Testament epistle of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, it's located toward the end of the New Testament. You can start to turn there. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, but let me just tell you, it's written by the last living apostle, John, the disciple, John, the son of Zebedee, brother of James. He is writing to believers and churches under his pastoral care At the end of the first century, he is writing to them and ultimately to us that we might walk in the light, obey the Lord's commandments, primarily to love one another as Christ loved us. So you cannot love God. You cannot walk in the light if your relationships are all jammed up. And especially in the church, not just the local church, but all believers. It's imperative throughout 1 John that we love one another well as an expression of God's love for us, God's love in us, and God's love through us. So you want to walk in the light and obey God, you got to love the person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you that is your brother and sister in Christ. First uh, John is a series, one of the ways we're looking at it, a series of lessons on how to walk in the light so that we might have fellowship with the Father and with His Son and with one another. And why is that so important? Well, we've discovered because that is the source of all true life enjoy it's not in the stuff you have it's not what you've achieved or accomplished it's the relationships that we have horizontally and vertically this is where life and joy is found so we saw a series of lessons so far we need to take sin seriously we need to obey god god's commandments we need to love one another we've already talked about that last week we saw In order to do this well over time, we actually have to believe uh, in our very heart of hearts that which God has said about us is is true, whether we're new in the faith, young in the faith, uh, middle-aged in the faith, or, or old men and women in the faith. Talking about spiritual maturity, we have to understand and know that which God has said is true about us and for us. Because if we don't believe those things in our hearts, there's no way we will consistently be able to to walk with God, to walk in the light, to love him, love one another well. But I also need to say that all these lessons and everything that's come so far in 1 John 
as well as everything that's going to come after, comes down to these three verses today. This is the epicenter of 1 John. If you're given to writing in your Bible, which I advocate for, because the, the, the scripture collection is not a magical thing that you, you know, don't put it on the floor. Oh no, God's upset. Um, you know, ultimately, this is uh, two cows squeezing a tree. Leather, leather, wood pulp. It's the truth that is contained, and it can be electronic, it can be in your memory, but there's nothing sacred about the book itself. I would say if you're around a Muslim, uh, be appropriate. They take better care of the Quran and what they consider potential scriptures than we do, as far as actually how they behave with them. But the reality is, is you may write in this. And so what I would say is if you have a red pen... Go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and circle it in red pen. And right next to it, epicenter. Because everything in 1 John depends on these three verses this morning. Shall we look at them? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now let me just tell you, that's, that's loaded with warning and that's why I would say circle it in red. Do not pass go. It's, it's loaded with, with negative appeals. Like if you do this, there is a major consequences to be paid. But I do need to let you know it's built on a very positive and hopeful and joyful proposition. And that is the possibility that we could have intimacy with the creator of the universe such that we could know the love of God. And that goes in three directions. And we, we'll see it later on in, in 1 John. Um, not that we love him. Oh, that guy loves God. But John would say that's not the most important thing. But to know the love of God for you. The reason why we don't love God well and the reason why we don't love one another well is because we don't know the love of God for us. And that is fundamental and foundational to the Christian experience, to following Jesus, that you would know that you know that you know. And that's why the verses that came before last Sunday, I'm writing to you little children and, and you fathers and you young men in the faith, and you need to know how much God loves you and how much he's done for you, and not just to pass a theology exam, but to actually feel it is true in your heart of hearts. That you would know the love of God and what happens for those who know the love of God. They love God well. Sacrifice? What sacrifice? We don't call it spiritual disciplines. They are delights. They're not duties. It's a privilege to walk with God when we know the love of God. And guess what? It totally translates in how we love Christian brothers and sisters. It's almost like it's magical. 
we forgive easily, we don't get offended, we don't judge people's motives, we just love. And then it goes on even further to those outside the church and the lost. We have a deep, deep love even for those who would oppose or even persecute. That's how this thing works. But the reason why you circle this in red and, and why it's uh, uh, such a warning is because there is something that could devastate the love of God in the life of the child of God. And so if we don't pay attention to this, this will neutralize. It will not kick us out of the kingdom. It will not get us unadopted or make us unloved by God, but it will de devastate the love of God in us. As we begin, we've read these verses, and as we begin, we just need to answer a real simple question. What in the world is the love of the world or the things in the world? Because it's, this kind of language is all over the Bible, and it doesn't always mean the same thing. So we have three options. We just want to walk through the, this. The word in the original language, cosmos, where we get the word cosmology uh, or the universe, um, it is the created order of things. And there have been so-called believers throughout the history of the world that believes that we are to despise the created order of things, that, that matter is evil, fundamentally bad. And I can't wait until God comes and burns it all up. And uh, this simply is not true because an appreciation for and an, an enjoyment of the creation itself as the majesty of God and the fingerprints of the creator is all over the scripture. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. That this world, though it's fallen and it's groaning, the whole universe groans, it is beautiful and it is good. That is not the world that John is speaking of. In fact, uh, Paul would tell Timothy, God is the one who richly provides us everything to enjoy. So we are not talking about uh, turning away from the world in, the, in, in a manner of becoming ascetics, not bathing, not, not doing our, our hair or, or makeup, for those of you who are, are women. Um, we are saying, no, the world is good, created good. And that is not what he's talking about. The second option are the inhabitants of the earth, either the entire human family or those that are currently spiritually lost. And so in the first instance, if we don't get that one squared away, we become ascetics. And here, if we get this wrong, we become exclusive. And that the church really exists for us. And no one else is really invited unless God chooses them and they get in later. So some would think that this is lost huma sinful humanity that's in rebellion against God um, as individuals or the whole human race. And that's just not so. Even if it were lost humanity... Well, Jesus said, and John records it in his gospel, in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So here in 1 John, he's certainly not telling us to not love. 
humankind or those outside the kingdom of God. We are to love as Jesus loved, and Jesus loved that world. But here's the third option, and this is what John is talking about. The aggregate, that is everything together in compilation, of all things earthly as the driving, energizing, hope-giving force of life. Need to say it again? The aggregate of all things earthly as the driving, energizing, hope-giving force of life. It is the love for, the worship of, a commitment to, the passing, transient, temporal, created things in this life in place of the love and worship of and commitment to the creator himself. It's taking the gift of the creator and saying, that is my jam. That's what I'm about. And whether he exists or not, I don't care. This is all I got and this is all I care about. This is James Strong, his statement of John's use of the world here. It's the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which, although hollow, hollow and frail and fleeting, still desire, seduce from God, and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. We have an example, uh, just a blatant example from uh, a professor Dr. Lawrence M. Krauss, he is a professor, a retired professor at ASU in the realm of uh, theoretical physics, and he is an atheist. And this is what he says is the purpose of life. He says, I've told you two things. First, you're much more insignificant than you ever imagined. And second, the future is miserable. But you should be happy because we may live in a universe without purpose, but that means the purpose in our lives is the purpose we create. And we can, should consider ourselves fortunate to have, have evolved in this place in the middle of nowhere and evolved a consciousness so we can understand the universe from the earliest moments of the Big Bang to the far future. So instead of being depressed, and here's his thesis statement, you should enjoy your brief moment in the sun. This is what Paul talked about in the first century, 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection is not real, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it's no wonder that he is a friend of and defender of Jeffrey Epstein. This professor. Makes sense. Yeah, this is all the lost man has to hope for the world or the things in the world, the world and its desires. Now, John goes on to further explain in nuance what is uh, making up this composite love of the world, and it bears looking at and slowing down and understanding what he means when he says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. There are three categories, three enemies, three sources of temptation that seek to draw us in and take us down a path. Let me tell you, once down that path, sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. 
and it will cost you far more than you thought you would ever pay. So you better know your enemies well. By the way, these actually correlate clearly to the enemies of the Christian life that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. I'm not going to go there, but early part of Ephesians chapter 2, he names three enemies of the faith. And so that's worth looking at. But these also correspond, I believe, to the three temptations of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they also correspond, I believe, to the three temptations we heard about in the call to worship, uh, the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness temptations. These are the archetypes. And the three enemies are the flesh, the world system, and the, the devil himself. And so you see how this unfolds here. The first one, the first archetypical temptation, uh, love of the world or the things in the world, is the desires of the flesh. This word for desires is going to show up here and in the next one. It's epithymia. It means desire or craving or longing, but it also takes on a real negative idea in the scriptures of uh, being a desire for that which is forbidden, or a better word is lust. Just a yearning lust for that which is forbidden. And I would say this, if you're taking notes, just write this down. These are internal, physical, appetite-driven. Desire for food. And we'll see that show up in both the garden and in the wilderness. And we make much out of, out of sexual desire in the church in America. But very little out of gluttony. And an inability to control that hand to that mouth. And yet we would point the finger and decry someone who is struggling with sexual lust. Because again, in, in the garden... It says of Eve, Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and she wanted that donut fruit, she wanted it. And God said, no, eating is important and you need to eat. And that's why I made you with a body that would get hungry. But look at all the other trees. Eat from those. And yet what happened to Eve, she saw, but this one looks different. This one looks better. This one looks unique. I want to try this one. Not that one, or that one, or that one, or a hundred million others. She had a legitimate appetite. This is my definition of, of sin. Sin is an attempt to meet a legitimate desire in an illegitimate manner or timing. I mean, there, there might be a time when you could actually eat that thing. But the Lord says, but not now. you got to wait. And that's a metaphor and a reality. Okay, but it's an illegitimate manner or timing. We see the same thing taking place in the temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4, verse 2 through 3. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's a physical bodily appetite. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God... 
command these stones to become loaves of bread, and we know that he could do it. But what the temptation was, was to meet your legitimate desire in an illegitimate manner or timing. Jesus was going to eat again. Jesus was going to eat bread. Jesus was going to create bread out of nothing, but not here. And so Lucifer was saying, do it now under your own authority, separate from the Father's. Meet your legitimate hunger in an illegitimate manner or timing. This is internal to us. This is the flesh. The second one, the desires of the eyes, if you're taking notes. These are the external desire-triggering visual enticements of the world and the world system. The world shows us what life looks at and they make it look fun. And it is indeed fun for a season. The advertisement world, this is what it's built on. You don't need this, but it's my job to make you convinced that you desperately need this. Or though that you cannot afford this. It's visual. These appetites in us that we didn't even know we had are triggered and inflamed. You'll see these, these three things actually working together in tandem, in unison, to draw us away from the love of the Father. We see this in Genesis 3, once again, after Moses records that Eve saw that it was uh, good for food, the next thing we read there is, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Whoa, that looks so cool. And instead of looking away, she kept staring at it. We have this in the wilderness, um, though not in perfect order. These are flip-flopped in the way that, that Matthew records them. Uh, it says here that, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That is a visual stimulus or visual stimuli, plural. And he said to them, all these I will give to you. If you'll fall down and worship me just this one time, take a shortcut. They are his. They belonged to him in the past. They will belong to him and come under his lordship in the future. But the devil was saying, take the shortcut, get them now. Just worship me once. That is all. Beauty, experiences, adventure, beautiful places, retail therapy, shopping websites, things that other people are doing that just makes their life look so good. Why do you, you know it's true? Because it's on Facebook. And you stare at it, and it begins to stir up desire. Maybe even saying, that's not fair. And that's the third area. The pride of life. Pride is, means in the original language, empty braggart talk. It's pompous. Look at me. I'm awesome. Hey, you should be me once or twice. You'd have fun for once because my life is awesome. Look what I've done. And even if it's not true because I have my own secret 
struggles. I want you to think I'm having an awesome life. And that's why we carefully curate our Instagrams and Facebooks and whatever else is out there. It's because we want to look like we've arrived. I've, I've always come back to, to John Mayer's song from a million years ago, No Such Thing, where he says, I, I can't wait for my 10-year reunion. I'm going to bust through the double doors. Everyone knows John Mayer. He wants to go back to his high school. He's a college dropout, but world-renowned musician, and he can't wait to show it off at his 10-year reunion. Now it'd be like the 35th year reunion for him. But that's the idea. I want you to see me. I want you to know I made it. I want my family, my classmates, and people around me go, Jim Roden made it. Because he is awesome. He is special. We see the same thing with Eve. When she saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Wow, she's really got life figured out. She understands the mysteries of the universe and the difference between good and evil and right and wrong. This was a temptation. And we see it again in the temptation in the wilderness. The devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now imagine that, the pinnacle of the temple. The doors are never closed. There's always a crowd on the temple mount. And now Jesus and the devil are standing on top of the temple. And he goes, throw yourself down. And it's not just that God will save you and that'll be cool. Can you imagine the messianic expectation and the, the adoration and the veneration of Jesus of Nazareth before he even goes into ministry, before he goes to the cross of saying, watch this. And as he jumps down, speeding toward the ground at 140 miles per hour plus, depending on bariatric pressure and temperature of the air and elevation, he is hurling toward the ground and he just stops and stands. And who's watching? And they go, surely this is the Christ. And they all bow down. This was a shortcut to glory. This is the pride of life. This is the right to brag. Bragging rights. I've earned bragging rights. Look at me. Look at this. I'm awesome. You better not disregard me. You better not disrespect me. That's the negative side. How dare you treat me like that? The pride of life. And here they are, the enemies of faith, the enemies of the love of God. Bad news, no one here this morning is safe. No one is immune from the allures of this world and the things of this world. I want you to remember in context what just came before. I've referred to it two times already in the message. Little children whose sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Children who know the Father. Fathers who know him who is from the beginning. Young men who are strong, the word abides in. And they have overcome the evil one. And John says, right after those verses, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because no one is immune from these enticements. In fact, you know the very final sentence of 1 John? The whole epistle ends like this. 1 John 5, 21, little children, 
keep yourselves from idols. And if sin is the desire to meet an Ill, a legitimate need in an illegitimate manner or timing, idolatry, idolatry is making a created lesser thing an ultimate thing. And John says, don't do that. The world and its desires are lesser things. They are good gifts from a good father. But once they supplant God the Father as an ultimate thing, they become false gods or idols. And guess what? Any good thing, your favorite thing, can in a moment slip across the line into an idol. How do you know when it's violated or taken away or threatened? You'll know, oops, oh man, didn't see it coming. Happens all the time. You'll know what your idols are when they are threatened. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. No one has arrived, no one is immune. Let me just point out one individual in the New Testament, one of Paul's ministry partners named Demas. Demas is named two times in the New Testament before this third statement. Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And then in uh, Paul's personal letter to a man named Philemon, he says, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Demas is a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul, and yet in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's final scriptural writing, he says this, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It happens to preachers and missionaries and pastors that we can fall into the love of the world without even knowing it. So that's how Demas ends. I Hopefully he came back, but that's the final statement in the New Testament. And what's the takeaway? I, Jim Roden, will be attracted to, enticed by, the world and its desires until the day I die. And so will you. I have to get up every single morning and go to war against these three temptations. And so will you. And how do we go to war? What do we do to escape the world and its desires? What do we do? Here's, here's what I call a better bottom line than the one that's in print. We're going to do both of them. But here's the bottom line. Break up with the world before the world breaks you. Break up with the world before the world breaks you. When he says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world, it can either be don't be habitually loving the world, or in the original language, this is an option that I actually think is true. Stop loving the world. It's an action already in progress. It's already happening everywhere and all the time. Stop. Stop loving the world and things in the world. Break up with it. You know, I don't have a lot of experience with breaking up because I didn't have a lot of experience with dating. And I, I, I know rejection, <laughs> flirting with the girl and going, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I know that. But I only had to break up with one girl two times. Okay. And all I need to tell you about that is she was actually a really, really great person. But I was super immature. 
there's no way I was ready to be in a relationship. Really great person. When the original infatuation wore off, I went, huh? I had to break up with her. Okay, we have the opposite problem with the world. A really terrible, horrible person, and yet a deep, ongoing, longing to be with her. The allure of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. Regardless of how you feel about her today, she is a terrible, he is a terrible, the world is a terrible individual and its desires. We must break up with it before it breaks us. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, you adulterous people, how would you like to have Pastor James as your pastor? You adulterous people. This is what he writes in James 4, 4 to, to the church. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy, enmity with God? You're adulterers. You need to renounce that adulterous affair. You need to get in counseling. You need to, to, to recommit to the wife of your youth. You adulterers. Bottom line, the one that's in print, in order to walk in the light and flourish in the Father's love, because that's what's at, what's at stake. These are antithetical, we're going to discover. In order to walk in the light and flourish in the Father's love, love from God, for God, and from God for others, in order to flourish in that, I must break up with and renounce my adulterous affair with the world, and I must do it daily. Romans 12, 2, Paul would say, do not be conformed to this world. Do not, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I must break up with the world before it breaks me and crushes me and squeezes me into its mold, is the word picture there. Now, in ending this morning, we have two critical reasons why we must learn to break up with the world and renounce our adulterous affair with it daily. Yesterday's renunciation and breakup is not good enough for today's enticements. And the first is this, and it's a fill in the blank in your bulletin, the love of the world is completely incompatible with the love of the Father. 1 John 2.15 says, if anyone loves the world, by the way, it's interesting in the Greek, it's a third class conditional, which means a more probable future. We've already noted that this is actually likely something that's already in progress. Do not love the world. Stop loving the world. But here, if anyone loves the Father, or anyone loves the world, if, third class conditional, a more likely future, you're probably going to do it and do it again. But he goes on to say, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is not to say that you are not a child of God. It is to say that you are devastating and damaging and neutralizing the love of God in your life. It shows in your relationships to him 
and with others as well. So if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because these two loves, one for the world, one for the Father, are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist in the same time and in the same place. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, by way of comparison is the idea there, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So John and Jesus both indicated it is impossible to love the world and the Father. You can't have a mix. It's all out, white hot for God or something else. James, back to what he said, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, you want to dabble, there's, you see it and go, I like that. I want to do some more of that. And whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And why is this so? Well, earlier on we read in 1 John that God is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever. He cannot tolerate darkness. He cannot tolerate moral or ethical impurity of any kind. And so we cannot harbor a love for these kinds of things and hope that everything is going well and that we are growing in the love of God. It simply cannot be done. That's the first reason why we must learn to break up with the world daily. The love of the world is completely incompatible with the love of the Father. Secondly, because the world and its desires, the world and its values have already failed and are fading away. Fill in the blank. The world and its values have already failed. They don't work. You know they don't work. The scriptures are clear and life experience and history are filled. The experiment's been run a hundred million trillion times already. It never turns out good, ever. And yet here we are getting sucked back into it and saying, yeah, but it'll be different for me this time. What is wrong with us? We are mentally ill, spiritually sick. The world and its values have already failed and they're fading away. This is verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. Passing away, parago in the Greek, disappearing. It's present, passive, indicative. It's being caused to pass away. Someone is making it go away right now. We read about this earlier on in, in 1 John. A um, couple verses earlier, at the same time, it's a new commandment about loving one another from the heart. God's love for us communicated to one another. It's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is being caused to pass away, and the true light is already shining. What is the true, true light? The true light is the love of God for us, from us to God, and through us for each other. The true light is here, and you cannot have these two together. It's one or the other, but it's already been demonstrated Trying it again, going after the, the, uh, the, the, the hungry things, the shiny things, the arrogant things, it doesn't work. And you know that this is why Jesus actually came is, according to 1 John 3, 8, 
the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He destroyed them on the cross and in the resurrection and ascension. He's destroyed. They are being caused to pass away. Sin has never worked. Even before the cross, it didn't work. Why do we think that we're going to have our cake and eat it too? That we're going to be uh, born again on fire for Jesus and be awesome in this world? And I'm not after the awesomeness in this world, but I like it when it happens, and it's not a bad thing. Look, it should not move us whatsoever. Failure, success, whatever. Until failure and success mean nothing to your heart, you have not arrived, and I don't think that's going to happen this side of heaven. But we must go after if we hope to abide. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word abide means to remain present, will not fade away. Eternal life, we will go on forever. There will be a stability and a permanence to who we are in Christ. So what does it look like to do this? What does it look like to break up with the world in order to abide forever? This story, and, and you likely heard the statement, but let me tell you the backstory, best as I can tell, it's actually true. That a Rwandan Christian in 1980 was being threatened by his tribe. He was being told to renounce his faith or the tribe would put him to death. So he had put pen to ink and paper and he wrote what has come to be called the fellowship of the unashamed. This is what it means to break up with the world. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will not look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. And I now live by presence. Lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and his work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own. He will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. And the next morning, 
refusing to renounce Christ, he was killed on the spot. That's what it looks like to break up with the world. This is the man, the woman who abides forever. Augustine of Hippo said this, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. For you, he became temporal so that you might partake in eternity. Now, I would love it if this were a once and for all, knock down, drag out, bare knuckle fight to the finish. Like, let's get it over with right now. Renounce Christ or die. Very, very few of us will ever face that kind of decision point. The rest of us, it is a daily grind. In being tricked back into time and time again, the deception and the, the alluring of idolatry. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know what I love about the word does in the, the Greek and the, the verb tense? Whoever keeps on doing, meaning it's not a once for all. You got to do it and do it again and again and again and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Whoever keeps on doing the will of the Father abides forever. And that is why we must learn to break up with the world and renounce our adulterous affair with it daily. Daily. How do I do this? Sometimes I forget to do it daily. There's, I'm, I'm, I'm not the fellowship of the unashamed. When I was younger, I thought I could pull that off. I can't. I'm a failure. But what can I do? First off, I confess. 1 John 1, 9, I don't just confess my sins. I actually grieve my appetites. And I tell God blatantly, hey God, I really, really want to have sex right now. Hey God, I really, really, really want to cheat right now. Hey God, I really, really, really want to look at that, that person running on the side of the road right now. I want to do that, God. I'm confessing. We looked at that study, that homo legao, to say the same thing about it that God says, hey, you're not hiding anything from God. God, I'm really, really struggling right now. Do you, do you have an honest, read the Psalms. I mean, you get to actually pray that people will die. Whether it's right or wrong, God can handle it according to the Psalms. So you might as well talk about grieve and mourn even the appetites, not just when you step over the line and commit sin. Confess, tell God what you're struggling with. And then here's the beauty, surrender open hands, surrender. God, I have hopes, fears, and, and desires, and longings, and ambitions, and I want to be seen as this or that. I don't like it when people, I don't like that comment. That person really hurt my feelings today. Um, I think it's the pride of life. I'm not sure, but open hands, God, whatever. You can have my stuff. You can have my bank account. You can have my, my family. You do whatever you need to with my kids, God. I know you're good, so I trust you, but God, really, I'm surrendered and, and you, you confess, you talk about the things you want, and then you surrender to the good heart, the good plan, and the good will of God. And then you delight in him. Delight in a good father that knows what your longing is and believe that he will meet your legitimate desires in his time and in his way.
But whatever you do, break up with the world before it breaks you. Let's pray. Father, epicenter. Such an important text. The other side, Lord, is you love us. Oh, how you love us. And to, Lord, actually grow over time in intimacy, not just information, but intimacy with the creator of the universe, that we might become the children of God and grow up in him who is the head, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus himself, that the next version of us is of far greater value to this world and glory than the last version of us. Until we see you face to face, change us, transform us, deliver us, teach us what it means to break up with the world, teach us the love of the Father, show us what it means to abide forever, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.